Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. Our selection this time, The Face in the Target by G.K. Chesterton, read by Perry F. Bruns, Part 2. They had walked along the straight road for nearly a mile, conversing at intervals in this fashion, and March had a singular sense of the whole world being turned inside out, Mr. Horn Fisher did not especially abuse his friends and relatives in fashionable society. Of some of them he spoke with affection. But they seemed to be an entirely new set of men and women who happened to have the same nerves as the men and women mentioned most often in the newspapers. Yet no fury of revolt could have seemed to him more utterly revolutionary than this cold familiarity. It was like daylight on the other side of stage scenery. They reached the great lodge gates of the park, and to March's surprise, passed them, 
and continued along the interminable white straight road. But he was himself too early for his appointment with Sir Howard, and was not disinclined to see the end of his new friend's experiment, whatever it might be. They had long left the moorland behind them, and half the white road was grey in the great shadow of the tallwood pine forests, themselves like grey bars shuttered against the sunshine and within, amid that clear noon, manufacturing their own midnight. Soon, however, rifts began to appear in them like gleams of coloured windows. The trees thinned and fell away as the road went forward, showing the wild, irregular copses in which, as Fisher said, the house party had been blazing away all day. And about two hundred yards farther on they came to the first turn of the road. At the corner stood a sort of decayed inn with the dingy sign of the grapes. The signboard was dark and indecipherable by now, and hung black against the sky and the grey moorland beyond, about as inviting as a gallows. March remarked that it looked like a tavern for vinegar instead of wine. A good phrase, said Fisher, and so it would be if you were silly enough to drink wine in it. But the beer is very good, and so is the brandy. March followed him to the bar parlour with some wonder, and his dim sense of repugnance was not dismissed by the first sight of the innkeeper, who was widely different from the genial innkeepers of romance, a bony man very silent behind a black moustache, but with black, restless eyes. Taciturn as he was, the investigator succeeded at last in extracting a scrap of information from him, by dint of ordering beer, and talking to him persistently and minutely on the subject of motor-cars. He evidently regarded the innkeeper as in some singular way an authority on motor-cars, as being deep in the secrets of the mechanism, management, and mismanagement of motor-cars, holding the man all the time with a glittering eye like the ancient mariner. Out of all this rather mysterious conversation there did emerge at last a sort of admission that one particular motor-car, of a given description, had stopped before the inn about an hour before, and that an elderly man had alighted, requiring some mechanical assistance. Asked if the visitor required any other assistance, the innkeeper said shortly that the old gentleman had filled his flask and taken a packet of sandwiches, and with these words the somewhat inhospitable host had walked hastily out of the bar, and they heard him banging doors in the dark interior. Fisher's weary eye wandered about the dusty and dreary inn parlour, and rested dreamily on a glass case containing a stuffed bird with a gun hung on hooks above it, which seemed to be its only ornament. Puggy was a humorist, he observed, at least in his own rather grim style. But it seems rather too grim a joke for a man to buy a packet of sandwiches when he is just going to commit suicide. If you come to that, answered March, it isn't very usual for a man to buy a packet of sandwiches when he's just outside the door of a grand house he's going to stop at. No, no, repeated Fisher, almost mechanically and then suddenly cocked his eye at his interlocutor with a much livelier expression. "'By Jove, that's an idea! 
You're perfectly right. And that suggests a very queer idea, doesn't it? There was a silence, and then March started with irrational nervousness as the door of the inn was flung open, and another man walked rapidly to the counter. He had struck it with a coin and called out for brandy before he saw the other two guests, who were sitting at a bare wooden table under the window. When he turned about with a rather wild stare, March had yet another unexpected emotion, for his guide hailed the man as Hogs, and introduced him as Sir Howard Horn. He looked rather older than his boyish portraits in the illustrated papers, as is the way of politicians. His flat, fair hair was touched with grey, but his face was almost comically round, with a Roman nose which, when combined with his quick, bright eyes, raised a vague reminiscence of a parrot. He had a cap, rather, at the back of his head and a gun under his arm. Harold March had imagined many things about his meeting with the great political reformer, but he had never pictured him with a gun under his arm, drinking brandy in a public house. "'So, you're stopping at Jinx, too,' said Fisher. "'Everybody seems to be at Jinx.' "'Yes,' replied the Chancellor of the Exchequer. "'Jolly good shooting. At least all of it that isn't Jinx shooting.' I never knew a chap with such good shooting that was such a bad shot. Mind you, he's a jolly good fellow and all that. I don't say a word against him, but he never learned to hold a gun when he was packing pork or whatever he did. They say he shot the cockade off his own servant's hat. Just like him to have cockades, of course. He shot the weathercock off his own ridiculous gilded summer house. It's the only cock he'll ever kill, I should think. Are you coming up there now? Fisher said rather vaguely that he was following soon, when he had fixed something up, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer left the inn. March fancied he had been a little upset or impatient when he called for the brandy, but he had talked himself back into a satisfactory state. If the talk had not been quite what his literary visitor had expected, Fisher, a few minutes afterward, slowly led the way out of the tavern and stood in the middle of the road, looking down in the direction from which they had travelled. Then he walked back about two hundred yards in that direction and stood still again. "'I should think this is about the place,' he said. "'What place?' asked his companion. "'The place where the poor fellow was killed,' said Fisher sadly. "'What do you mean?' demanded March. He was smashed up on the rocks a mile and a half from here. No, he wasn't, replied Fisher. He didn't fall on the rocks at all. Didn't you notice that he only fell on the slope of soft grass underneath? But I saw that he had a bullet in him already. Then, after a pause, he added, he was alive at the inn, but he was dead long before he came to the rocks. So he was shot as he drove his car down this strip of straight road and I should think somewhere about here. After that, of course, the car went straight on with nobody to stop or turn it. It's really a very cunning dodge in its way, for the body would be found far away, and most people would say, as you do, that it was an accident to a motorist. The murderer must have been a clever brute. But wouldn't the shot be heard at the inn or somewhere? asked March. It would be heard, but it would not be noticed. That 
continued the investigator, is where he was clever again. Shooting was going on all over the place all day. Very likely he timed his shot so as to drown it in a number of others. Certainly he was a first-class criminal, and he was something else as well. What do you mean? asked his companion, with a creepy premonition of something coming, he knew not why. He was a first-class shot, said Fisher. He had turned his back abruptly and was walking down a narrow grassy lane, little more than a cart track, which lay opposite the inn and marked the end of the great estate and the beginning of the open moors. March plodded after him with the same idle perseverance and found him staring through a gap in giant weeds and thorns at the flat face of a painted paling. From behind the paling rose the great grey columns of a row of poplars, which filled the heavens above them with dark green shadow and shook faintly in a wind that had sunk slowly into a breeze. The afternoon was already deepening into evening, and the titanic shadows of the poplars lengthened over a third of the landscape. "'Are you a first-class criminal?' asked Fisher, in a friendly tone. "'I'm afraid I'm not, but I think I can manage to be a sort of fourth-rate burglar.' And before his companion could reply, he had managed to swing himself up and over the fence. March followed without much bodily effort, but with considerable mental disturbance. The poplars grew so close against the fence that they had some difficulty in slipping past them, and beyond the poplars they could see only a high hedge of laurel, green and lustrous in the level sun. Something in this limitation by a series of living walls made him feel as if he were really entering in a shattered house instead of an open field. It was as if he came in by a disused door or window and found the way blocked by furniture. When they had circumvented the laurel hedge, they came out on a sort of terrace of turf, which fell by one green step to an oblong lawn like a bowling green. Beyond this was the only building in sight, a low conservatory, which seemed far away from anywhere, like a glass cottage standing in its own fields in Fairyland. Fisher knew that lonely look of the outlying parts of a great house well enough. He realized that it is more of a satire on aristocracy than if it were choked with weeds and littered with ruins. For it is not neglected, and yet it is deserted. At any rate, it is disused. It is regularly swept and garnished for a master who never comes. Looking over the lawn, however he saw one object which he had not apparently expected. It was a sort of tripod, supporting a large disc like the round top of a table tipped sideways, and it was not until they had dropped on to the lawn and walked across to look at it that March realized that it was a target. It was worn and weather-stained. The gay colors of its concentric rings were faded. Possibly it had been set up in those far-off Victorian days when there was a fashion of archery. March had one of his vague visions of ladies in cloudy crinolines and gentlemen in outlandish hats and whiskers, revisiting that lost garden like ghosts. Fisher, who was peering more closely at the target, startled him by an exclamation. Hello, he said, 
Somebody has been peppering this thing with shot after all, and quite lately too. Why, I believe old Jinx's been trying to improve his bad shooting here. Yes, and it looks as if it still wanted improving, answered March, laughing. Not one of these shots is anywhere near the bull's eye. They just seem scattered about in the wildest way. In the wildest way, repeated Fisher, still peering intently at the target. He seemed merely to assent, but March fancied his eye was shining under its sleepy lid, and that he straightened his stooping figure with a strange effort. "'Excuse me a moment,' he said, feeling in his pockets. "'I think I've got some of my chemicals, and after that we'll go up to the house.' And he stooped again over the target, putting something with his finger over each of the shot holes, so far as March could see, merely a dull grey smear. Then they went through the gathering twilight up the long green avenues to the great house. Here again, however, the eccentric investigator did not enter by the front door. He walked round the house until he found a window open, and leaping into it, introduced his friend to what appeared to be the gun room. Rows of the regular instruments for bringing down birds stood against the walls, but across a table in the window lay one or two weapons of a heavier and more formidable pattern. You've been listening to Part 2 of The Face in the Target by G.K. Chesterton here on Calm Mystery. Calm Mystery is a Murder Mystery Company production, part of American Immersion Theater. Scott Crampton, Executive Producer. Audra Schildhouse is our editor. And until next time, Stay calm. Mystery is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM. <laughs>